From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Throughout history, systematic and institutional barriers have blocked access to basic human rights for people of color, LGBTQ communities, and more. As years go by and the discourse changes, some barriers are taken down but replaced by others. However, racism, prejudice, and discrimination are still woven throughout our laws and policies today. On this episode of our Community Engaged series, Dr. Bryn Austin of Boston Children's Hospital is joined by civil rights advocates Rasan Hall and Jansen Wu to discuss the discriminatory laws that harm gender and racial minorities. Dr. Austin, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So we're here to talk about a pilot grant that you recently awarded. um, And we're also joined by two of your collaborators on the grant. So I was going to ask Rasan and Jansen if you could both introduce yourselves. Uh, My name is Rasan Hall. I'm the director of the Racial Justice Program for the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Hi, and I'm Jansen Wu. I'm the executive director of GLAD, which stands for GLBTQ, Legal Advocates and Defenders here in Boston. So Dr. Austin, as I mentioned, you received a pilot grant to look at state laws in the U.S. and how they impact health outcomes across LGBTQ and racial minority populations. Can you tell us how you aim to do this? We've known a long time that there are health disparities, widespread health disparities affecting the LGBTQ community and racial ethnic minority communities. But what we haven't had is how does this larger climate of, uh, in many areas of the country, of stigma and discrimination affecting the health of sexual and gender minorities, and how are positive changes perhaps improving the health? And that's the question that we set out to answer with the study. What are the specific outcomes that you're looking at? We're looking at outcomes having to do with physical health and mental health uh, in a whole range of areas that could have to do with depression, anxiety. It could include uh, HIV infection, asthma, eating disorders. All of these areas we have a sense may be affected by the kinds of stressors that LGBTQ populations and uh, racial ethnic minorities, and particularly when you bring those together, uh, uh, sexual and gender minorities who are people of color. Um, We want to look at the variety of health outcomes and look back at what uh, uh, folks' experience was in the larger community around discrimination and perhaps protective laws and how that might be affecting their health. So, um, Rasan and Jansen, could you tell us what are some examples of discriminatory laws that exist in this country that would affect the um, the population that you're looking at, that Dr. Austin, you're looking at in the study? Part of it is understanding what we're talking about when we say discriminatory laws, because mm-hmm. a lot of the laws... Uh, as a constitutional matter, are not racially uh, discriminatory on their face. It's the outcomes 
uh, of the laws. And so when people are talking about structural and institutional racism, it is these race-neutral laws that have disparate impacts on communities of color. And so looking at uh, stand-your-ground laws that enable a person to defend themselves in their home or sometimes in the street uh, with a weapon when they feel threatened, or mandatory minimum sentences uh, for any number of offenses, but particularly uh, for drug offenses. Um, so those are some of the things uh, that we look at when we're thinking about uh, the, the discriminatory outcomes of racially neutral laws uh, that disproportionately in impact communities of color. And for the LGBTQ community, we've been working decades uh, to overturn the last of you know the targeted anti-LGBTQ laws that do exist on the books, such as laws criminalizing same-sex sexual intimacy um, and laws, you know, prohibiting, you know, teachers, um, openly gay teachers from teaching in, in schools. I mean, these are the laws we've been working for decades to overcome and overturn. One of the clearest examples I can think of this is the laws that prohibited LGBTQ people from becoming adoptive parents or um, foster care parents, you know, and only up until very recently, these laws were on the books. But then as Rasan was saying, then there's also just, you know, laws that have a disparate impact um, on LGBTQ people, um, you know, such as laws that only recognize families based upon genetics or biology and don't take into account how LGBTQ families are formed. Um, and then there's also just an absence of affirmative protections um, for LGBTQ people, such as no basic non-discrimination protections in jobs and housing and in public spaces that we're still fighting for um, across the country. So, um, Rasan, you mentioned stand your ground laws as an example of a law that's not discriminatory on its face, but has discriminatory effects. How does that, how does that work? Sure. I think uh, a perfect example um, is uh, the issue, uh, the situation of Trayvon Martin, uh, the young black child who was murdered by a community watchman uh, claiming that he was standing his ground, that he felt uh, that he was uh, under attack, or the um, uh, the young man who was uh, killed in Florida because he was playing uh, music too loudly in his vehicle, and the the person who killed him felt like that in, uh, that the young man and his friends uh, thought he saw a weapon, and so he was entitled under the law in Florida uh, to use deadly force. And and those are problematic in that they are disproportionately applied when the defendant is white, uh, less likely applied when the defendant or the person accused uh, of the violent crime is a person of color, particularly a, a black person. Um, it, it, it starts from when the police uh, make charging decisions to what the prosecutors uh, decide to do, and then also uh, it creates an opportunity for race to influence not only the police and the prosecutors, but also the jury pool in determining whether or not uh, the stand your ground law is applicable. How exactly do these laws impact health outcomes, if whoever wants to chime in? Um, and maybe Dr. Austin, if you could give us some information about any, uh, is there any literature linking these laws to health outcomes, or either of you, if you, yeah. if you have any? Yeah, the, there's a, a growing literature looking at specific laws where there's the most research or laws around marriage equality, uh, they, where there have been uh, studies that have looked at how has mental health of LGBTQ people changed before and after either a positive change in the law, looking back, like for instance in Massachusetts some years ago when when uh, same-sex marriage was made legal, 
uh, or looking at how the impact may be negative in many states over the last uh, decades where there was major discriminatory organizing to ban marriage equality. And with that research, we've seen a strong signal of negative impacts on mental health of LGBTQ people in states where there was a lot of organizing to push through discriminatory laws. And we see some protective effect when Massachusetts was the first state to go forward with with marriage equality, we saw protective effects. But that's just one type of law. What there has never been before is a comprehensive study that looks at the whole the whole universe of laws, the whole climate, because uh, states will have many, many laws that can affect LGBTQ people and laws with the, at the intersection that affect um, racial and ethnic minority communities and then people of color in the LGBTQ communities. Nothing comprehensive has been done. So sounded like a big challenge to take on. So Rasan and Jansen were up for it and our other colleagues, and we decided we're going to be the ones to do that. And we set out to create the most comprehensive databases on LGBTQ state-related state laws, uh, whether discriminatory or, or protective, and then also racial justice laws at the state level, covering uh, de- two decades of period every year updated across the whole United States in every state. Um, that's our goal is putting together the most comprehensive databases. What there has been available is one law documented in every state over a couple of years or some databases that will cover part of this around uh, racist laws and capturing some of that. But none were, no databases we could find were comprehensive enough to, for us to be able to fully explore and understand the experiences, particularly of sexual and gender minorities of color. Uh, And that's what we set out to do and uh, have made great progress on that. Thank you to Harvard Catalyst to be able to begin that work. Was there anything, Rasan or Jansen, you wanted to add in terms of um, the health outcomes? I think particularly when we're talking about uh, policing and uh, the criminal legal system in in general, uh, the the physical and psychic impact that involvement in these systems have uh, on people who are overwhelmingly uh, poor um, compounds some of the existing environmental issues that people are dealing with, the already uh, existing health issues that folks may have. And so when, for instance, with mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses, uh, that takes all the discretion away uh, from a judge. Uh, And so a judge could look at a situation and see, like, here is someone who is suffering from substance use disorder. And the prosecutor, because they have the leverage of a mandatory minimum sentence, uh, is saying, I'm not going to break this down and this person is going to be forced to either take it to trial and serve a mandatory minimum sentence or uh, accept a bargain that I offer, which many times includes uh, some form of incarceration. Uh, There are studies that show here in Massachusetts that people who suffer from opioid use disorder are 120 times more likely to die of an opioid-related overdose death. Um, and, and after being released from incarceration. And so when you think about the racial disparities uh, in who is incarcerated, who's charged with and convicted of uh, mandatory minimum offenses, uh, it skews heavily uh, towards uh, people of color. Uh, black and Latinos make up roughly 25% of the state's population. We make up 75% of the people who are serving sentences on mandatory minimum drug offenses. And so to think within that population, there are people who are struggling with substance use disorder. Disproportionately, they're going to have 
have worse health outcomes when they're released. Uh, that's separate and apart from whatever kind of con uh, conditions, communicable diseases, trauma that people experience inside of these uh, facilities of incarceration. Uh, and then the stress of just living in a community uh, that is over-policed, where people are randomly subjected to being stopped and frisked by the police in many instances for no reason at all. You know, I think Rasanda made a really good point in kind of talking both about the physical harms as well as the stress that impacts, um, you know, vulnerable communities. Uh, you know, I think about that in terms of tangible harms and kind of dignitary harms. Um, and for LGBTQ people, that's really true. So if we're thinking about tangible harms, you know, if you aren't protected from being evicted because of your sexual orientation or your gender identity, then that's a health issue, you know, if you're housing insecure. If you, you know, can't, you know, uh, um, find employment because of your gender identity, we know that transgender people are uh, four times more likely to make less than $10,000 a year. That's a health issue, right? Um, but we also know that there is harm from just the stigma um, the dignitary harm of being targeted uh, by your own government. And so when you think about, you know, um, you know, um, recent and current policies and laws that exclude uh, insur public insurance coverage for transition-related care, including hormones and surgery for transgender people, you know, it's a very targeted exclusion of a vulnerable population for necessary health care that is then deemed either elective or cosmetic. And to have your own government say that your identity is somehow cosmetic um, has its own stress that um, that impacts transgender people as well too. And so, you know, we see the outcomes, we see uh, the uh, the disparities when it comes to mental health, depression, suicidality, drug use, um, as a result of the dignitary harm. And you mentioned that so you're building this database, comprehensive database, looking at all the laws across the country that fit into this category of uh, discriminatory or how would you describe how would you describe the category of laws that you're looking at is there like a term for is it just discriminatory laws or it's just you're evaluating laws based on how they operate well, I can tell you a little bit about our process for creating the data databases. Yeah. Uh, we we sat down with experts like Jansen and Rasan, and also poured over legal textbooks of how is racial justice law or civil rights taught in law schools, and how is LGBTQ rights taught in law schools to see what domains they identified. And the domains, some are overlapping and some are, are very different. So we put together these databases by reviewing what is known in the civil rights literature and the LGBTQ rights literature and the racial justice literature, uh, what domains. And we have um, a, a, about 10 domains in each database. And then the laws, the specific laws are listed under there. We worked with uh, legal specialists uh, at Northeastern University and at Columbia University and, and at Harvard, and then, of course, with the ACLU and with GLAD to put together the most comprehensive and rigorously designed databases um, that we could get on these types of laws. We were restricted to state level. We made that choice. Certainly, there are laws happening at city level, uh, the federal level, that and, and then administrative-type rulings that could be important also. Our database is focused on the state level as a starting place. Um, if we have the opportunity to expand our databases further, we would include a lot more because we know that there's many different ways that laws and policies at multiple levels affect the conditions of people's lives. 
Right. So you needed that legal expertise to sit down and kind of comb through and read the literature and get that perspective on how to sort these laws in, into different domains. It, yeah, to put together databases like this, we absolutely needed the legal expertise. Uh, public health experts, medical experts wouldn't have the right expertise to be able to read the legal literature. Uh, we hired uh, uh, folks at Northeastern University, at Columbia and Harvard to work with us and spend the hours, days, weeks, months combing through the legal databases of laws all over the country and going back 20 years to be able to create this database for us. So it's a very interdisciplinary team who is required to be able to do the work that we're doing now. Can you talk about why it's important to collect this kind of data and how you use it as advocates in um, your work at GLAD, Janssen, and your work with the ACLU, Rasan? I, I think there is this, particularly when we're talking about racial justice, there is this desire of people in positions of power uh, to deny that there are issues with race. Uh, I like to say that, for example, we here in Massachusetts struggle uh, with liberal exceptionalism. We think that because we are the first state to pass same-sex marriage uh, or that we were one of the early abolitionist states or that because we overwhelmingly vote for the Democratic candidate uh, in presidential elections that we don't have these other issues. Uh, but when you look at the gross racial disparities in educational outcomes, uh, in wealth, uh, in incarceration rates and policing, uh, it's, it's hard to say that there are not issues around race here. And so it's in, in doing the advocacy to really get policy change, uh, it, it's one thing for me as an advocate to say, here's a law that needs to be changed or here's a law that needs to be implemented because it will have beneficial outcomes for people in communities of color, people who are living uh, in poverty or on the cusp of poverty. Uh, but it's another thing to have the data uh, that supports that. I, I recall uh, as an advocate pushing for legislative reform to some of the criminal laws. And legislative session after legislative session, we were told that it, it really couldn't move forward because the legislators wanted to be sure that uh, the proposals that were being implemented would actually work. And so they wanted to see some sort of analysis. And the way that you conduct this analysis is through research and through data. Uh, and so it's beneficial to have a database like this where the, the data is available to uh, make the arguments as to why um, health outcomes are impacted by these discriminatory laws and why some of these laws need to be uh, changed, eliminated, or uh, protective laws need to be enacted. And I'll, I'll maybe even be blunter than Rasan was. In terms of the really tough social justice issues our time on LGBTQ rights, on racial justice, legislators would like nothing more than to not have to do something, right? right? They have to be forced to see that there is a problem, that there is harm to our communities first before they will act, right? And so one of the reasons why collecting just the data on disparities is to show there is something wrong happening. This isn't happening by accident. And you legislators have a role in fixing that. But just showing those negative disparities is not enough. And let's just be clear that these negative disparities in the LGBTQ populations and communities of colors, and especially if you combine them together, 
are profound. And so I'll speak specifically about LGBTQ youth for a second in, in terms of the high suicidality rates, um, levels of depression and anxiety um, that we see, which we believe is not an accident, but is a result of a whole cycle of um, challenges that, that they face from family you know, rejection to um, being uh, targeted by both, you know, their peers as well as administrators in the schools, leading to um, involvement with different state institutions that are um, inadequate and ill-equipped uh, to support those identities. Uh, we believe all that together is leading to these negative disparities for LGBTQ youth. But if we don't do the work that, you know, Dr. Austin's doing to connect that to the discriminatory laws, and our opponents will do the exact opposite. And so one example that I've been noticing more and more recently is that our opponents of LGBTQ rights are actually using these, this data on negative disparities against us. And they're actually saying, you know, actually the reason why there's high levels of suicidality amongst LGBTQ youth is because these identities are disordered and they are unhealthy. And the last thing the government should be doing is supporting the creation of these identities, right? I was in a hearing recently in New Hampshire that would, on a bill that would have banned the discredited use of so-called conversion therapy on young people. You know, this is, uh, you know, uh, abusive practices that have been denounced by all the major medical associations who try to change a person's sexual orientation and gender identity. And one of the things I pointed to was the high suicidality rates of LGBTQ youth particularly when they are subjected to conversion therapy. And the other side's argument was actually we're trying to save them. So their argument is that suicidality, depression is a result of these identities. We're trying to change their identity to eliminate these negative outcomes. Exactly. Um, and that's quite a pernicious argument yeah. on, on their side to do that. But it also points to a limit of prior research that just looked in the very, uh, a small bubble around sexual minority youth as an example of what's happening with them, maybe with peers, with family, uh, and uh, in their own mental health. Um, what we are doing is expanding out the, the, the vision, the scope of what's happening in the larger environment with discrimination uh, and uh, harassment, stigma, and how with these larger forces that government should take responsibility for what's happening in the law and policy, absolutely. What's happening with them and connecting the dots all the way to the higher suicide rates or the mental health struggles of sexual minority youth, particularly in discriminatory environments. Now, Jansen had, had uh, mentioned the idea that one type of injustice relates to what he called dignitary or the dignity being uh, disrespected, uh, treated as second-class citizens, and how that affects um, LGBTQ people, how it affects racial and ethnic minorities uh, and communities of color, uh, sexual gender minority communities of color. Now, we can connect, connect the dots now in a larger sense through the medical physiological research, too. So the, there's, the, there's a, the stressor of being treated as a second-class citizen, as being uh, the stressor of being deliberately isolated and shunned from your family and your community. 
Um, there's a loss of dignity there, but we can trace the effects of that all the way through the physiological impacts of that kind of discrimination and stress so that we know from other research that this kind of uh, mistreatment in, 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 against different groups can lead to higher risk of heart disease, of higher risk of diabetes, uh, higher risk of unhealthy weight gain, uh, other kinds of mental health responses. What it does physiologically is puts the stress response, our fight, and fight or flight response, it puts it into overdrive on a constant basis when people are living in such a stigmatized uh, and harassing environment or discriminatory environment. When, you're, when your stress response, the physiological stress re response is put into overdrive on a long-term basis, that just wreaks havoc on all systems of the body. So we know from other literature that these are likely to be very connected. We haven't connected all of the dots uh, for sexual and gender minorities, but we have connected a lot of them. And through this additional research with these very comprehensive databases, we're looking to see what are all the pathways uh, that are leading to these uh, really abhorrent uh, health uh, differences and disadvantages uh, in these communities mm -hmm. uh, so that we can uh, come up with leverage points, develop leverage points, whether it's advocates like Rasan and Jansen and the, the teams they work with, or it's people designing healthcare systems or other ways. We want all of that kind of um, the programs and interventions and changes as law in law to be evidence-based, and we're producing the evidence to do that. Um, was there anything you wanted to add? I, I did. I, I just about the importance uh, of this work, especially in the public health space. Uh, Dr. Nancy Krieger, who's over at the um, School of Public Health, uh, her and some colleagues issued a, a paper of structural racism and health uh, inequities in the in the U.S. And and one of the things that they looked at was um, a web science search that looked at the term race in conjunction with health or disease or medicine or public health. And there were 47,855 articles that were retrieved. But when race was replaced by racial discrimination, there were only roughly uh, 2,000 articles uh, that were located and only 1,996 were found when the term racism uh, was used. And so that goes to this notion of this reluctance uh, to really get to the root causes of what is uh, uh, a source of some of the, the health disparities that we're looking at, especially when we're talking uh, about uh, people of color and then from an intersectional lens uh, of LGBTQ people of of color, and, and so I think this this database and this research is uh, very significant and very important because it begins to shift the narrative. It's not that people are just unhealthy uh, or live uh, high risk lifestyles uh, and therefore they have these adverse outcomes, but there are these structural uh, and institutional uh, barriers uh, to people's health, um, and and that also contribute uh, to actual uh, physical as well as uh, mental health decline. What have some of the challenges been? that you faced putting this database together with, you know, trying to get all this collaboration moving forward? Have you, have you run into any roadblocks or issues that you didn't anticipate? Uh, well, the, the finding funders to support the work is challenging when you're doing something that's in a new area, but mm -hmm. thank you to Harvard Catalyst. We've able, able to get a lot of work done. Um, and we will certainly continue to expand the work with more funding. I would say one of the one of the um, really interesting ways of when you're bringing disciplines together and trying to do a joint project together, um, one question that came up when we were working with the health the the uh, legal uh, researchers 
Um, in, in law school, they are trained to get at every nuance of the law, all kinds of detail, writing paragraphs and paragraphs might describe a single law and, and how it's administered. And then in the health research, when we're doing work with big databases uh, and using the methods that we have um, in the health research, we want that boiled down to zeros and ones, you know, down to a, a very uh, concrete and limited and finite set of uh, ways of uh, characterizing a law, not in paragraphs, not with all of the news, nuance so much, but, but something that we would be able to then do analyses with um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or more records in uh, big database type research. So that was actually kind of a uh, like speaking different languages and bringing the teams together of how do we make sure we're capturing everything we need to know about each of these laws, because none of them are really simple, yes or no, on or off, implemented in the same way everywhere or not. Uh, all of them are more complex than that, but we needed to be able to link them in all of the, the methods that we use for the health research. But we did. We sat down, we talked it through, to talk it through how to um, code this law or that law and, and whether to capture a nuance or was that going to be um, maybe too much um, the, the uh, fine grain that we would need for the health research. But in general, I would say everybody was so on board. Every single person on this project was 100% committed. We talked through where there was uh, differences in the kinds of language or uh, ways we approach defining questions in law, in, in public health, in medicine. We talked them through and, and came up with this really solid, uh, comprehensive, really the most comprehensive databases there are to date. Um, so we'd say those were easy problems to work through. Dr. Austin, what work still needs to be done um, to kind of finish out this first part of the project? I know that you want to expand to capturing more laws, um, but what what's the what do you still have to do in this phase? Well, the the work to be done is, is along a, a couple of different lines. One of them is to continue and expand how we're linking the databases to major national databases that have years and years of health experience already captured uh, in in a cross section of American society. Um, some with data from youth, from uh, some with data uh, from nationally representative databases uh, across communities of color, uh, and linking that with health services utilization or delays in care um, with diagnoses uh, and uh, other aspects of um, uh, life experience, including employment, income, a lot of different kinds of issues that have come up in this conversation. Uh, so we've we've had many years of work to, to do that, uh, and um, we're well on our way to, to do that work. We also want to expand the databases to uh, continue to update them um, as laws change progressively in the in the country, and to uh, also expand them going. Um, back in time also. We've got 20 years, but we could go back further. Mm. Um, and we have all the methods worked out on how to do that. It's just a matter of implementing it that way. And then a third line is is connecting with community organizations and other research groups to make our databases available widely. Uh, we will make them uh, freely available uh, once we're done putting them together. Uh, at Temple University, they have the premier outfit for legal epidemiology, which is where this study fits into that realm. 
there in that field, legal epidemiology, they, they have a uh, publicly available database called Law Atlas, where they will put legal databases that are used in health research up for anyone to use. And that's the direction that we will take with these. So it could be used by advocates uh, who would not be doing the kinds of health uh, analysis we would do, but it could also be used by peers of ours in the scientific community to look at some different health questions. All of that we have mapped out and, and, and plans to move forward on that. And we're doing, we're doing the work as fast as we can, and we will continue um, as laws change and as new databases become available to connect with the, 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 the health outcomes, the health experience, and also economic outcomes with the, what's happening at the state level across the country. So you mentioned that you hope that um, the scientific community will use these databases as well. Are there any ways, um, other ways that you hope the databases will be used? And uh, Rasan and Jansen, feel free to uh, chime in too. How do you hope that once this project is completed and as it continues to evolve, how do you hope these databases will be used? Well, I hope that, you know, as legislators and policymakers understand that, you know, discriminatory laws hurt people's health and laws um, that affirm and protect um, communities um, improve those outcomes, uh, that we'll see um, our laws and policies moving uh, in a more positive direction. Uh, one you know, area that I think would be great to, you know, as we think 10 years later from now, see what the impact has been is around school cur curricula um, with LGBTQ identities. So um, it's interesting, tomorrow actually we're having an organization come to GLAD's office to talk about their work creating um, LGBTQ inclusive curricula mod modules for teachers to use. Um, and there's now a growing demand from schools and teachers to actually be able to incorporate LGBTQ history, not as a separate topic, but of course, yes, people should understand about the this LGBTQ rights movement, but just, you know, incorporate into, you know, the classes on literature and history and civics. Um, and we're starting to see some states, not many, but some states start, start to encourage, um, you know, inclusive curricula. I'd love to see 10 years from now, you know, what impact that makes on the healthy development of self-esteem for LGBTQ young people. And I think that positive impact could be really profound for them to just know from the start, from their families, from their schools, from their teachers, that their identities are included as a healthy component of our civic society. You know, I think it's valuable to have this data and this research uh, to put, um, to go along with the anecdote. I've got anecdotes for days about racial profiling. I've been racially profiled myself. I can tell legislators about that. Um, but it's another thing to, to, to say it's not just a one-off. It's not just my own personal experience. Here's a data set uh, that shows it. And then to take it a step further, if we begin to examine the health outcomes uh, of, of racial profiling and, and what that has done uh, to people and to communities, and particularly when you look at the significant health disparities uh, that exist, as well as other uh, disparities in community, it, it, it creates a significant shift, at least in my mind, and my hope is that it will create a significant shift in the conversation about race and racism in this country, that it's not just interpersonal racism. It's not somebody calling me the N-word, and that's the racist, right? But it's these systems and these structures that perpetuate this uh, the uh, 
uh, this oppression and these negative health outcomes and financial outcomes and educational outcomes in communities of color. And and to get to the root of it, that it's not just this maniacal madman or a group of maniacal madmen sitting in a room planning to let's let's disenfranchise black folks, right? It, it's 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 not that. It's about structures, institutions, and infrastructure that has built up around um, uh, these notions of racial superiority or white supremacy um, that have perpetuated throughout society. And and I think this research uh, is another layer um, on the narrative about how the things that seem relatively innocuous are part of the problem and they have these deep roots um, in some of this nation's original sins, uh, but are masked because of their facial neutrality. And I would say from my perspective as a scientist, we need scientists doing this kind of research because if we want evidence-based policy and law, we have to be at the table. We have to be contributing to designing the studies and evaluating what laws and policies are already out there which is what this study is designed to do, to evaluate where are they having harm, maybe where they're not, or where they're being protective and actually benefiting health, and then also to be doing the research to help inform new laws and policy. To have evidence-based policy that affects health, scientists have to be involved, and that's absolutely a top priority for this study, and I hope that many other scientists will want to do studies like this or expand the research they're doing so that we can know that, that the process of making law and policies or revising them when they need to be changed is done based on evidence of what ultimately is going to help society improve health and give everyone a, a fair chance to, to succeed in our society. One thing I wanted to commend Dr. Austin on doing is that by pulling in folks like Rasan and myself, um, she's really showing that she wants to be intentional about how this research is used, not and not to you know um, impact the neutrality or the um, or the unbiased nature of the research itself. I mean, the data is what it is, but rather to make sure that there aren't unintended consequences of the research. And you know, so often I see well-intentioned research by academics being used by opposite sides for opposite purposes and twisted in ways that folks never intended. And I think what Dr. Austin is really doing here is to make sure that the data speaks for itself and is used for its intended purposes. Thank you all for coming in. It was great to have this conversation with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Next time on Think Research. We still have in South Africa about 40% of the population living with HIV not in care. And really, that's where we have to focus. This 40% may just face additional barriers that we need to be addressing more creatively. Dr. Ingrid Katz returns to discuss her research on HIV AIDS treatment in South Africa. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.